it's like, you know, we have people on board, right? They want action, but how much do they want action? How much are they prioritizing that against other issues? When we can make people know that this is fundamental to their quality of life, which it is, right? When people can start, we can frame it that way so people can understand that truth. That's where we're seeing a lot more action. Because again, acting on climate change, it is not charity. It cannot be a charitable action. It cannot be something we can do because we have extra time and extra privilege to care about things beyond ourselves because it impacts every single one of us in every single part of the country and every single facet of life. Welcome to another episode of Animalia, where we bring wildlife conservation, climate change, and social justice together to help people connect the dots and get involved. Today on Animalia, we are chatting all things climate communication with Molly Kabahata. Molly is a mountaineer, a climate advocate, and former member of Obama's White House, where she worked on the climate policy and communications team. Since that time, She's gone on to work at the Pacific Gas and Electric Company and is now working in the private energy industry. Just start, you know, how would you, how would you describe what you do? Like, how would you describe who is Molly? So I'm a clean energy professional. I started out in the Obama White House several years ago at the beginning of his second term. He had announced the, at the, actually at the end of his first term, he'd announced the climate action plan. And at the beginning of his second term, they were full-blown in implementation stages. So he announced the Climate Action Plan, which was the roadmap for his second term on how we were going to take ambitious climate action. And so they brought me on. I had a policy implementation background from working at the Office of Management and Budget. So I was there for several years working on that, which was a really exciting time to be there, working on things that I was really excited about that were really happening at scale. And then after that, I worked for Hillary Clinton's campaign because I'd started to get a sense that we were overestimating. I was overestimating how permanent our climate policies were, given that they were via executive action. And I was kind of looking around at what was happening around the country. And I started thinking about the fact that leadership might change and that would really hinder climate progress. And, and so I started to get concerned about that, just kind of sentiments that were happening around the country, conversations I was having. And so I moved to Ohio to work for Hillary Clinton's campaign there with the sole purpose of trying to preserve President Obama's climate legacy. And obviously that election did not go the way we had hoped. Very demoralizing time. And so I spent some time trying to figure out where I could still have impact. I moved to California where I worked on energy efficiency programs in California. And then now I work on clean energy in the tech sector. So kind of a whirlwind, uh, a random pathway to where I am today. An awesome, awesome pathway. And you, so you described all the incredible things you've done from a work standpoint in your career, but just to sort of, you know, rephrase my question in terms of who you are, Ah. put the, put the work and put the LinkedIn aside, quote unquote, who is Molly? Like what, you know, why do you care so much about this planet? And, and its inhabitants, like what, where did that come from? Where did that stem from? Like what, who, who are you sort of? you know, beneath or, or, you know, at a a depth below the, you know, the work history? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a refreshing question. So I, 
I was not outdoorsy in kind of like my teenagers. I was sort of like a brat. <laughs> I like didn't really, I don't know, I like shopping and makeup. And at one point I just fell into a really deep depression. It was a really tough time in my life. And so at one point my brain and like my mind just started drifting into images of like forests. I was very, very lucky to live in the Bay Area where I had access to the outdoors. And so even though I never used them, I realized I could. So at one point I just started looking up online, like trails nearby. I remember there was like a overview of a hike and it said like the trailhead starts here. And I remember being like, what is a trailhead? And I looked all over online and there was no description of what a trailhead is. I was so confused. And now to me, that's like so second nature to understand that kind of terminology. But at the time, that's how foreign that kind of world was to me. And anyway, finally figured it out. And I started hiking in my free time and I really enjoyed that. And so basically nature became this really powerful therapeutic force in my life and really helped me out a lot and kind of changed the course of my life. So I started getting more into that and being in more kind of wide open spaces that I was seeking out. I think I'm, I'm kind of claustrophobic. And so I'm really drawn to wide open spaces and so I started being really enthralled with the alpine, which for anybody listening is anywhere above the tree line. It, they tend to be very, very wide open spaces, especially glaciers really just kind of enthralled me. And so I started getting into mountain climbing and alpinism and uh, mountaineering. And then through that kind of more alpine ice and rock climbing, and it's been kind of a journey into the climbing world. But in these spaces, you know, kind of being on these glaciers, it really kind of reminds you of what's happening in the world and how much is at stake and how much these, you know, our public lands do for people, not just for people like me, but, you know, for, for folks across, you know, the political spectrum and kind of the value of public lands and what that can do for mental health and public health is really powerful. So I started thinking about that more and then kind of fell into this world of climate change and clean energy. And that kind of became my calling both in work and kind of outside in, in thinking about what do I care about and what do I feel is at stake? Yeah. Going back to the work a little, just for a brief put, and then we'll go into the climate communication topic we're going to start with. For the folks that don't know Obama's climate action policy, can you just, you know, since you worked on it in the White House, can you tell us sort of the main pillars? Uh, obviously, it's, it's, you know, a lot of details. We could do a whole podcast about it, and that's not what we're doing here today, but just the main pillars of it. And then what of all the things that you worked on as it related to climate in the White House, what was the one thing you were most proud of? Yeah. So to answer that first part, and, and it's really interesting to see what's going to happen now that we have this new administration that's going to be coming in that's making climate change a massive priority, which is so heartening. President Obama's climate action plan was all based in executive action. So based on the reality of the Congress that existed then and the fact that there was zero desire or willingness to work on climate action in that Congress, we had to do everything ourselves. So basically, there were three pillars to this plan. One was climate mitigation, which is the area I worked in. That means curbing greenhouse gases within the U.S. The second was adaptation and resilience. And that looks like a lot of preparing for natural disasters, working with local communities, flood standards, things like that. And the third pillar, which is a huge one, was our international work. And that was largely led by the National Security Council and the State Department and was really centered around the Paris Climate Agreement. 
We worked very closely with that team when it came to thinking about domestically, what what can we do domestically to create as much leverage as possible for them to negotiate internationally? So there's a really close relationship we had there. The biggest part, in addition, besides the Paris Climate Agreement, the biggest part of that plan domestically on the mitigation side was the Clean Power Plan. That was the Environmental Protection Agency's first ever carbon pollution standards for new and existing power plants, which was really exciting. It was really exciting. That was the thing I was probably most proud of working on besides kind of the the work we were doing peripherally to help and support the Paris work. But it was really an exciting time to be there. And I'm really proud of what we were able to do despite the challenges we faced since. But I'm so heartened to see this new administration that's going to be coming in and really making climate change the forefront of what's happening in the federal policy landscape again. And because you had to do so much through executive action and executive orders rather than legislation, correct me if I'm wrong, that that is also what made it relatively easier for President Trump to undo a lot of that through his own executive action. Is that fair to say? Yes, it has the full force of law, but it's a lot more vulnerable, obviously, than legislation that's passed by Congress. So that's absolutely true and accurate. And that's when I started thinking about kind of what I was seeing during around the time that election was starting in 2015, what I was seeing happening around the country and those kind of sentiments change. I started to realize how vulnerable those policies were if somebody were to come into office who did not believe in climate change. That's exactly what happened. So that's that was my reason for going back into politics and and working on that campaign, knowing that we were going to fight to preserve that because it was so vulnerable. And that's a good segue into our first main topic on climate communication. The segue being this sort of part of the reason we haven't been able to get bipartisan congressional action on some of these matters is the like sort of the the divide between it and, and the communication gap between conservatives and liberals on this topic. And, and in some ways, I mean, there's fault here on both parties' side, for sure. This isn't just a matter of, you know, conservatives are all anti-climate change or anti-environment. They just have a lot of them, just some of them maybe, but some of them just have different priorities or they're not connecting the dots, right, between their priorities around economics and, you know, f- you know family and security with, with, with climate. And part of that, the reason those dots aren't connected is, you know, I, we haven't done a very good job for those of us, you know, on the side of, of really caring about this issue of talking about it in a way that is more inclusive and can connect to some of those uh, other values, you know, that re- reside in this country that are represented by the conservative party. And, you know, we've seen in the election that just happened, yes, Biden won, we're, you and I are both very thankful for that, but over 70 million people voted for Trump. So, I mean, there there are a lot of people in that conservative community that we need to do a better job of connecting with and talking with versus talking to and talking at. And so that kind of segues into climate communication, which I know is a, a very personal and sort of heartfelt topic for you. Uh, and there's a lot, lots of sort of angles into this. But let's start with like what's not working today. And, and then we'll, we'll kind of move away into, you know, addressing that and fixing that. But what's not working today? And why is the current state of climate communication not not doing its job of of you know kind of connecting to the to the values of a wider range of people such a good question and it's something i think about all the time i mean i think this this is one of the fundamental problems that we're facing in the climate fight right we have polarized this issue to no end and 
here's here's the thing like we need to figure out how are we going to meet people where they are i do not feel that we have done that and to take a step back you know i think we cannot take policy seriously we cannot pursue policy seriously unless we have the american people on board and to do that you need to meet them where they are so at the obama white house we actually went on a journey to understand what is the most effective way for us to talk about climate change there are a lot of different frames you can use to talk about climate change because climate change impacts every sector of society and every facet of American life. So we actually tested them and it actually revealed some really interesting things. So there's the there's the national security frame of climate change, which is natural disasters, disaster preparedness, disaster response, things like that, you know, wildfires, hurricanes. What we found is actually that's not a super effective way to talk about climate change for the average person because it's very separate from their daily life. There's the economic frame. This is for every decade you don't act on climate change, it's going to cost you this much more. Again, it's it's very abstract, it's not super effective. And then there's the environmental frame. Now this has been the predominant frame in the climate movement. You know, this is talking about melting glaciers, polar bears in the Arctic. This is not that effective to mainstream America because a mom who's working two jobs she doesn't have the luxury of thinking about things that are happening thousands and thousands of miles away. And I think this is part of the problem is that when we focus on climate change purely as an environmental issue, we're leaving a lot of people out of the conversation. And the environmental movement has a history of racism. We know this. Communities of color haven't had a seat at the table. And my whole thing with this is I, I feel that we've wasted decades talking about climate change and talking about polar bears in the Arctic before people started paying attention to communities of color next door who couldn't breathe, who didn't have clean air and water. And to me, that's really problematic. This is part of why we've ended up in this place. So by far the most effective way to talk about climate change unequivocally, we found, is through the lens of public health. And what does that mean? Another word for climate change is just pollution. And this is where climate change becomes climate justice. And I think this is an important point. When we talk about climate as a social justice issue, you cannot do that without talking about public health because communities of color are significantly likelier to have to live near things like fossil fuel power plants, polluting highways, toxic waste sites. And the NAACP has done a lot of research in this space to uncover these truths and share them with the public. And what result does that have? For example, one in 10 black children in America has asthma. I'm going to say that again, 10% of black children in America have asthma. And whenever I cite this stat in my talks, people don't believe me, they fact check me because it's such a horrific figure. But you know who this doesn't surprise are communities of color who have been fighting for clean air and clean water for their children. And I really, I call them the original climate activists. These are people who have been fighting for climate change long before Al Gore made a film, long before climate change was a term. They've been fighting for this. So public health is where we can transcend politics because no matter where you are on the political spectrum, Democrat, Republican, Republican, conservative, progressive, climate denier, climate activist, there is not a person out there that does not care about the health and well-being of their children. And that's truly what's at stake. That's what's at stake here. That's what we're fighting for. So framing this as a public health issue is a way, way to meet people where they are 
And it's something that's relevant and valuable and important for everybody. And it makes the conversation a lot more inclusive. And it brings everybody to the table who should be a part, a part of these conversations. So I would say fundamentally, public health is a huge area where we need to focus more on. And there are people who have done a lot more in this space. So for example, the American Lung Association, the American Medical Foundation Association, organizations that people don't think of as climate organizations, they are out there talking about climate change. Gina McCarthy, she was the administrator at the EPA, has done so much work to reframe this as a public health issue, to talk a lot more about pollution. So I think we're making progress. And I think that's part of why climate change has become more relevant to people, because at this stage, 90% of Americans want action on climate change. People are surprised by that, 90%. Now, there's a huge overrepresentation of climate deniers in Congress, and there are a lot of reasons for that. But in terms of the American public, we're making strides and there's a lot of momentum and people are joining the movement left and right. And so it's a really exciting time too. You know, last year I've, I've talked to a lot more conservative folks around the topic of climate. And I used to also bucket a lot of them into climate deniers. What I've learned is, and, and there's nuances and we have to do a better job as a society of not making things so black and white on so many different fronts. Like there are nuances and gray areas is that it's more of like what I would say, I reframe them as climate deprioritizers than climate deniers. Because a lot of the conservatives I talk to, they don't necessarily deny the science. There is, there's a small faction of that, but like there's small factions of crazy on on all <laughs> parties and spectrums, but they're more just, they're not prioritizing addressing it. And so I've, I've, tried to, I've tried to train myself a little bit to let, think about it less as climate deniers and more as climate deprioritizers which is useful when talking about it because then, you know, you're starting from a different point versus someone who truly denies and denounces science is very different uh, than talking to someone who acknowledges science but is prioritizing other things. And the reason that is so that, that difference is so important is that for that latter person, you just have to connect the climate issue to those things they're prioritizing, which very much you can, such as public public health, whereas the denouncers of, of science and, and, and facts are like, it's, it's a much different ballgame, if, if possible at all, may not be to, to penetrate there. So I think it's a, an important thing, distinction I always make. That I think is spot on. And you're so right that a lot of the climate problem is a salience issue. It's like, you know, we have people on board, right? They want action, but how much do they want action? How much are they prioritizing that against other issues? when we can make people know that this is fundamental to their quality of life, which it is, right? When people can start, we can frame it that way so people can understand that truth. That's where we're seeing a lot more action. Because again, acting on climate change, it is not charity. It cannot be a charitable action. It cannot be something we can do because we have extra time and extra privilege to care about things beyond ourselves because it impacts every single one of us in every single part of the country and every single facet of life. So the more we can message this way in a way where it's not things happening thousands of miles away or things happening decades in the future, the more we can make people aware of how this is relevant to their everyday life, the more people we have on board. And I think that's important. And exactly like what you're saying, it's not about proving this is real anymore. I don't, I don't want to talk about the climate science anymore. I want people to stop doing that because we're past that. There was never a debate and we kind of made it into one. At this point, we just need to act. And people understand that. The more we try and prove it's real, the more it's creating a frame that it might not be. And 
I don't want to waste our time on that. So we need to move beyond that. And I think we are, but like you're saying, it's a matter of making this a more prevalent issue in the eyes of the American public. Correct. And, and, and the more you, the more effort you put into proving something exists, the the more doubt you're creating of whether it does versus just sort of, just sort of accepting that and not, not, and not, you know, spending a lot of time on that. I'm curious since, you know, the public health thing is a, is a very valid point and it makes a lot of sense. And, but I, I'm curious how much has what has transpired in the last, you know, six to eight months sort of created any doubt or concern for you. And the, what I'm getting at here is we've seen millions of Americans also not, you know, address or, you know, the coronavirus situation as seriously as others. And, and there's no, there's, Nobody denies coronavirus is, for the most part, a public health issue. It's very imminent. It's much more imminent than climate change, right? Just in terms of its immediacy. But even though they're obviously very well, very connected, but we've seen so many people, even with this imminent public health sort of urgent issue and problem, still not wearing masks or not distancing or, or sort of prioritizing their own self interest versus the communal public health interest and saying, okay, yeah, the public health issue here is not really concerning for me because I'm young and I'm healthy, or I don't mind if I get it, I'll get over it. And and that has played a huge role in keeping coronavirus around to the point where we're now seeing a third spike you know, at record levels. So how much has what transpired in the last six or eight months given you any kind of concern or re, or you know reshaped how you're thinking about the public health messaging around climate? That's such a good point. That's such a good point. So a lot of this, a lot of times when we say Democrats and Republicans, progressives and conservatives, and there's this huge polarization, a lot of times we claim it's about policy, right? That's on the surface what it looks like. A lot of times it's not about policy. It's about culture. And a lot of the climate resistance, right, is this belief, not that it necessarily doesn't exist, like you said, but that it's kind of this cultural thing that, you know, they don't want to associate with being tree huggers and, you know, people who are primarily concerned with glaciers and things like that, that aren't that relevant. They've made it into a cultural issue. And that I think is actually happening across the political spectrum in every facet. I mean, this is why Donald Trump was elected. It was, it was a cultural thing. We're in the midst of, you know, what they call culture wars. So I think that's exactly what's happened with COVID as well with, you know, people who aren't wearing masks. It's don't tell me how to live my life. It's this is a conspiracy theory or a conspiracy. It's this belief that, you know, there's this general lack of ability to trust our fundamental institutions that have built and managed and run this country for century, centuries. So it's something it's something that's really challenging. And I don't have the answer. I have not figured that out. But there, there, and I know you know this really well, you know, the podcast you did with your father. So relevant to this is like, there are cultural issues with the fact that people in this country don't always feel like they're part of the conversation, right? There are a lot of communities in this, in this country that feel left behind. And how are we going to move forward in a way that includes everybody that's relevant to everybody's life, to everybody's agenda? That's an open question. And I think we're still figuring it out. Well, and, and that's, and I, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I was sort of going to take it there in that 
I think we we need both in a way. We we need the sort of overarching kind of macro talking points that can hit a lot of people. And I agree with you that public health as one of those overarching macro talking points is going to resonate with a lot more people than other macro talking points like, you know, don't you care about wildlife or you know, don't, don't you care about the environment or like, you know, these other, other things you talked about up front. So we need the, the, the macro ones, but we also need to be able to tailor the messaging towards the different values and, and interests and needs of different people. And particularly in a country like the U S that is so diverse, the U S is more diverse across, you know, race, culture, and socioeconomic than pretty much any part, any country in the world which makes that need even more important here. And one of the things I've seen, you know, the Republican Party do so much better than a Democratic Party, you know, especially in the last decade, is they've they've done a pretty good job, you know, put the 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 ethics of this as totally aside of just tailoring messaging towards specific groups. And, you know, I think one of the reasons that Donald Trump performed better in this election, although he did lose, but he performed better than I thought he would. And I think a lot of people thought he would, certainly in the polls thought he would, is because, you know, as an example of this message tailoring, you know, I saw the Republican Party talk to three very different constituencies, knowing like what their biggest fears were. They talked to you know, sort of the upper middle class and upper class around taxes. And, you know, you don't want to lose your money. We can protect that. They talked to the middle class you know, kind of suburban audience about security and safety. And and they talk to the, you know, working class and farmer and rural about about job protection. And, you know, they, you know, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna make sure immigrants don't come take your jobs. And again, putting putting the efficacy of these arguments aside for a second, they really tailor messaging really well. And they in some ways use digital in a much more savvy way than Democrats that are still to me kind of putting out this like all encompassing ideological messaging about how much how much smarter and better it is to be democrat and it you know it's very problematic to me in terms of how much better the republican party is than the democrat party at, at this in this aspect on tailoring messaging and i think it does come down to climate as well in terms of we need the macro ones public health i think you know as you articulated is probably the best macro one but we also need to learn how to connect climate to the unique and different values and needs and concerns of different constituencies and different groups of people and be able to talk to them in that way as well. Exactly. Oh, my God. I, I love that you brought that up because, yeah, I mean, Donald Trump, not that I like talking about him much, but Donald Trump is like a horrific human being, a horrendous president. He's also, I think, one of the greatest communicators of the century. I hate that. I don't want him to be. He's the worst person that could be. But how effective he is, how many people in this country know what his campaign slogan is? Like, make America great again, right? Like, the fact that so many Americans who support him and do not support him know what his campaign slogan is, is insane. How many people- I actually don't know Biden's campaign slogan. Exactly. And I mean, I'm being honest. I really, I mean, I mean, I, and I like, because I mean, I don't vote off campaign slogans, but I really don't know what it is. What is Biden's campaign slogan? Fighting for the soul of this nation, I believe. The battle for the soul oh, of this nation. Yeah. That's, and, not, and, a good, that's um, not a good one. <laughs> I worked for Hillary Clinton and I it was hard to know what her campaign slogan is. Like, do you know what that was? 
I have no idea what Hillary's Stronger together. Like. Nobody knew. Stronger together. I mean, like, how effective they Stronger been. together? Yes. Okay. How effective they've been. I mean, the idea that so many people could know your campaign slogan over years, not over weeks of a campaign, not at the end of your campaign, over years is brilliant. I mean, it's horrifying, but it's brilliant. So how many people could associate that? And what, I know we're, we'll probably talk about framing. I can get more into this, but how many people are associating whether or not they like Donald Trump, Donald Trump with America being made great again? That says something that's very powerful. And you are totally right that conservatives, Republicans have communications down. They win this every time, every election, they have this down. And the reason is because a lot of them study business. And when you study business, you study marketing. And this is work that's based off of George Lakoff, who is a cognitive linguist at UC Berkeley for years, now runs his own podcast called The Framing Lab. But conservatives tend to study business. And so they know marketing, which is based and rooted in the principles of psychology. So it's literally looking at evidence-based ways of how people understand, receive, and decipher information. Democrats, we believe that this truth speaks for itself. And we, that's not how it works. That's not how people understand information. You can't just say, it is true. Get it in your head. Done. Full stop. Like, that's not how it works, right? And so we'll say something once. Well, especially especially in a world now where because of social media, we're all living in different realities. Yeah. We all, we all live in different information echo chambers. And so you cannot simply stop your position as, what I'm saying is true and right, and you need to get on board or you're bad because you're, you're, you're not leaving any room to acknowledge that, well, this person you're talking to may have a different thing, you know, even if what, like different information that, you know, could be like, may, may well be false or may just be framed differently to them. That's being reinforced every time they open up their phone. Mm-hmm. And so like, you know, if they're, if that's getting reinforced to them over and over and over again, it's going to take a lot more than just like telling them they're wrong to, to bring them, you know, to, to, to work and, and, and find that unity. It's, it's, it takes a lot more effort than that. And this, this, this notion that you're saying, that, you know, Democrats stopping at like, well, what we're saying is right and true is absolutely not effective, even pre-social media because of the way people, nobody likes to hear they're wrong. And that's never a good like psychological way to convince somebody of anything, but especially you know, post the, you know, basically the Facebook newsfeed launching in 2008, where now everyone is living in completely different echo chambers of truth. Yes. Yeah. It's creating, it's creating a really problematic environment. It's like a, it's a problem like never before. On the note about kind of this idea of, you know, thinking the truth speaks for itself. This is why, this is one of the reasons why we're not, we haven't made as much progress on climate change as we want, because we haven't gotten as many people on board as we want is because people have just been ramming the science down people's throats. Now, I'm not a scientist. 99% of scientists like are on board with this. This was always what President Obama was saying. Like, I, I don't need to talk about the science because they're they're talking about it. But we need to stop ramming graphs and in, in data down people's throats because one, nobody understands that, including me, and we don't need to. And two, we're doing this thing where we're trying to prove something is real that is completely validated. And when we do that, it's bringing up 
it's bringing up the idea that maybe this is a debate. Maybe it's still up for being proved. Maybe it's something people can unprove. It's, it's, it's creating almost like a false equivalence. And you're right about this echo chamber and this idea that there are so many different forms of reality. And like you're saying, like there truly isn't always an objective truth in how people understand information. This is a fundamental part of psychology. And we tend to think there is. So we tend to just say how we think it is over and over in a way that's actually not conducive to neuroscience and psychology. So it's something that that we should think about moving forward. And kind of on the note, just going back really quickly about, you know, kind of like you were saying, repeating messages. That's kind of associated with priming, right? So like if you're walking down the street and you see somebody and they have on their shirt a picture of a bulldog, later in that day, if somebody asks you, think of a dog, you're significantly likelier now to think of a bulldog. And this happens all the time in our everyday lives. We're primed for so many different things. But when you think about political communications, this is where this becomes extremely powerful and relevant. Because again, like in this example I was providing earlier, if somebody's saying, make America great again, and they say that over weeks or months or years, that association in their brain between this person and America being made great again is pretty strong because that's how our brains wire. You're primed for it constantly. So what happens because that's so wired together in your brain, when you see him or you hear his name, you are now primed to associate that with his slogan, which is a very good slogan. So we have to be very careful. And Democrats get this wrong again, because we believe the truth speaks for itself. So we'll often air the argument of the opposition, and then we'll label it as false. This is so problematic because you're telling people you're you're giving false advertising and then you're doing something that's negligible, which is after as a side note, as an after effect, you're saying wrong. That has a negligible impact on people's brains. They hear the argument first. So that is also really important. And again, like talking about climate denialism, when people are airing these people's arguments, which is, again, just such a tiny minority who are just super, super loud you're literally giving them free advertising and you're putting that argument out there. And even if you say it's wrong or you have somebody next to them saying it's wrong because of this reason, it's still got in people's brains. That message was still received. They were still primed for that. And you can't really reverse that. Once it's done, it's done. So it's something we should really think about. And there are huge applications for this in in communications, especially in the political realm and climate change. So next, I want to jump into the, you know, and you pointed this out in our prep, the individual action versus systemic change discussion. And yeah, I'll let you go first and, you know, kind of talk about this. I know you have some, some thoughts here and I'll, I'll share some of mine and they're obviously both important. You know, you can't have, we can't have sort of one without the other in a way, or at least I don't think we can, but, but yeah, why don't you, why don't you sort of tee it up first, how you think about the, you know, these two sides of the coin? Absolutely. So one, I mean, we get systemic change through individual action. So, you know, the basis of our democracy is that individual action leads to collective action leads to systemic change. We vote, we register people to vote, we get the right people elected, they go in and they create policy. 
the number one question I get in my work is what can I do to fight climate change, right? Like I'm worried. I read the articles. I want to take action. What, what should I do? And I caution us from overstating the impacts of, you know, what I call kind of greening your life, making tiny, small changes in your life that are more environmental. Now, to be clear, I think everybody who can do this should, and it's wonderful and it's good and it's important. My point in talking about this is about two things. One is scale and one is privilege. So one thing we don't always think about is that it takes a lot of time, energy, and resources to be able to make changes in your life, and not everybody has access to those things. So for example, one example is like the idea of going vegetarian. And again, for those who have gone vegetarian for environmental reasons, I commend them and they should keep doing it. Like nothing of that should change. But there are a lot of people who live in in food deserts. And for anybody that doesn't know what a food desert is, there are people in this country who don't have access to fresh and healthy food who eat out of 7-Elevens. That's where they get their groceries. So asking somebody like that to make a significant impact and change in what they can purchase in, in, in their diet is not always realistic. Now, there are other ways, like, for example, riding your bike to work. That means you know how to ride a bike. That means you live in a community where it's safe to ride a bike. That means you live somewhere where the air is clean enough, where you don't get sick if you ride your bike. Um, again, things that aren't always available to people. Now, climate change, we need to remember, right? It is a systems issue. This is a problem. It's a crisis. So that requires solutions at scale. And when I talk about solutions at scale, I'm really talking about government action. And again, like you said, I agree, we can't have one without the other. We need to be living in an environmental-minded way. That's really important. But kind of one example of this is, say I need to go buy a car. I, as the consumer, could take on the burden of figuring out how I can afford the most efficient vehicle. And obviously, I'd love to buy an EV, but that's not available to everybody right now. Now, side note, EVs are going way down in price. There are a lot of incentive and rebate programs for folks uh, to make them more affordable, and they are the future. So I, I want to make that very clear from the outset. But it's not always available for somebody to make the most environmental choice right now. So that burden can be on me as the consumer or as an alternative. We can elect people who go into, an, into office and could institute something called fuel efficiency standards. And that's a policy which says that for uh, that says that a car needs to go this much further on a gallon of gas by this time. And it's a progressive policy, meaning as a technology advances and cars can become more and more efficient, they're required to. So all of a sudden, what happens is that cars on the market across the board are going to be more efficient. And so me as a consumer, whatever my price range is, whatever my budget is, I'm going to be able to purchase a car that's more fuel efficient. And in the process, I'm going to save money on, on fuel. So this is what I talk about when I'm kind of thinking of two sides of this coin. And, and, and there are limitations, right? Like, so if you want to make a significant impact in your carbon footprint, it's a lot harder than people realize because we're really talking about small cuts and emissions around the edges. And there's a great podcast that did a, a piece on this called The Interchange for anybody that's interested in clean energy and you know the energy landscape more broadly. And they actually ran the numbers and found that to make a huge cut in your carbon footprint, like to cut it in half, would really require huge, massive quality of life impacts. 
And it's not always realistic for folks to be able to do that. There are people that do that. I, I know, James, you've taken incredible action in your own life. It's really commendable, far beyond kind of the average person, even the average environmentalist. So it is possible, but it's difficult. And it's not realistic, for example, for somebody to necessarily like shut off their heat and power during certain hours of the night, likely when you need it most, right? So mm-hmm. what can we suggest as an alternative? Like when I plug in my phone at night, Am I polluting? Likely, yes. Is it my fault? No, because I'm living in a system. I don't have a choice. Like I I need to plug in my phone. Now, is the solution for me to not charge my phone between the hours of 4 to 9 p.m. during peak hours? Probably not. The solution, I believe, is that we get our grid to get more renewable energy, more energy storage to come online so that when I plug in my phone, because that's what our our life necessitates, I'm not polluting. We live under these systems. And so that's what I kind of mean when I'm talking about structural systemic change. And again, I think when people completely dedicate their platforms to the sole purpose of sustainable green living, and again, I know that's there's so many activists who do both. And I think that's really important. We're hitting both sides of the equation. But what happens is that we're talking to a smaller and smaller group that's more and more privileged because a mom working two jobs doesn't necessarily have the bandwidth to be able to make all of these greening of your life changes. And because it costs time, money, and energy. And, and you also have, a lot, have to have a lot of base knowledge to be able to do that, that a lot of people don't have. It can take a lot of time to learn about these things. So, so that's kind of my thing about this is scale and scale and privilege associated with it, that the, the solution to climate change needs to include everybody. And right mm-hmm. now it doesn't. Right. And so I think if people want to take action and then they're given, this is your way, green your life. They're not that not everybody's included in that. Not everybody's able to be included in that. When people ask me, what's the thing I can do to fight climate change? I give them a very clear, easy thing. It's register people to vote. When you do that, say like, like, let's create a scenario where in your free time, you decide you're going to register people to vote. And in that process, you enfranchise people, you and your friends, like go out, you enfranchise people, they're part of the electorate for the first time, they're empowered, they get to participate in their own democracy, and they vote and they get climate candidates elected, which is what happens when we get new voters, we get climate candidates. And those candidates can go into office and, for example, institute a renewable portfolio standard for your state. And when you do that, you're going to be actively increasing the percentage of renewable energy in your state's energy portfolio, which is great. And in that process, fossil fuel power plants can close. And what happens when we do that is the air starts to clean up for the community that's surrounding it. And like I mentioned earlier, those are disproportionately communities of color who are suffering from the air quality from uh, power plants like that. So it's just something I think we, we want to think about is that we cannot fight climate change without systemic action. And the need for systemic change is, is massive. And so I kind of put two categories. There's kind of green, sustainable living. And then on the other side, there's fighting climate change. And I don't think we can confuse the two. And I know you might disagree with me on this. So I'm, I, I would love to hear your perspective. But there's also another component to this, which is there's another aspect of corporate propaganda, right? Like marketing green products to people has become a big industry. And that's been a big opportunity for people to galvanize and capitalize on people who want to make change. 
but again, doesn't include everybody. These products are expensive. And, and the other part of this is that the CDP has found 70% of the world's carbon emissions are coming from 100 companies. I'm going to say that again. 70% of the world's carbon emissions come from 100 companies. At what point did we start blaming ourselves? And again, I'm not saying that to say we should not take action individually, but shame has become a huge tool within the environmental movement. I don't know when that started, but shame started becoming a big thing. Like you're not doing it right. You're, you're a hypocrite. You shouldn't be out there if you're not doing this in your own life. And it's, it's systematically kicking people out of the environmental climate movement, which I think is so counterproductive to our efforts. And it's also the opposite of inclusivity. It's, it's cancel culture. So anyway, with that said, I just think we want to be mindful of these things that when we have 100 companies that are responsible, we should be focusing on that. And we can focus on that through systemic change. That's, why, that's how we can decarbonize sources rather than take on that burden on our end. That's how when I plug my phone in at night, I can have it plugged into a grid that's a lot cleaner than I would um, otherwise. So just things we should, we should keep in mind. But I would love to hear your perspective on this. Yeah, and, and thank thank you for that. I, I think we definitely agree on the importance of both individual action and systemic change. And you make uh, great points uh, that I 100% agree with on the systemic change that has to happen. And it has to happen at that corporate level. They have to take initiative at that level. It has to happen at the the city design level, at the governmental level. Absolutely. And, it can ha- and we will not get systemic change without it. The case I'll make for why I would caution against sort of downplaying individual action too much, and I'll kind of walk you through my my sort of thought process on this. I first want to caveat it that I don't it ju- judging and 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 shaming people without knowledge of their circumstances and their background and their situation in life is never okay. So I don't I don't think of you know, uh, prioritizing or making individual action important correlating or, or that it has to come with also then attacking those who don't. I, you know, I say this all the time is like, I believe, uh, you know, any movement needs on-ramps, not blockades. And we have to create as many on-ramps for this climate crisis as possible. And, you know, as an example of that, you know, I have been plant-based for five years and I will say the first couple of years of it, I did do a lot of, I got caught up in some of that, like, you know, how are you not doing this? Um, like, this is like, you don't care. And, and, and I was in that, like briefly in that boat. And I actually ended up writing a blog post on Medium about sort of how much I grew to resent the word vegan. I don't use it um, to describe my lifestyle because from a food standpoint, because of how judgmental and self-righteous veganism has become. And it's not acknowledging for food deserts. It's not acknowledging for health, like individual health issues and needs and protein deficiencies. It's not acknowledging for just, you know, how hard it is to change a habit when you have other pressures in life, whether it's like financial pressure or family pressure, all these other things that people go through. So I I wrote this post around like why I went to saying I I live plant-based. I don't live vegan. I don't like the word vegan. And now for me, I don't ever go around sort of attacking people who eat, eat meat, 
I instead, if they ask about why I'm vegan, I'll, I'll say it. If they don't, I don't bring it up. And I will make every effort to make delicious vegan food for people every chance I get to show, like to showcase how, you know, this type of diet can still be very, very fulfilling and filling. And that's just an example. So I put the, I, I do, I, we agree on the non-judgmental part and we need to sort of understand that people deal with very different circumstances. So then getting into why I think this individual action is so important for one, I think that perhaps one thing I put in the individual action bucket, which I do think is accessible for everybody, is just talking about why these things matter. And and so I think of individual action, including in, I include in individual action, talking about climate change, whether it be with your friends, with your family, asking questions about it, just putting it in the dialogue in your life and, and putting you know, interest in it. I think in some, in a lot of ways, that's even more of an accessible baseline action than, 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 you know, registering to vote or getting, or more, more, maybe more point getting other people to register to vote, which is also really important. But I put talking about this issue in the same way. I think we, you know, we need to talk more about systemic racism, right? Like, like it needs to be like, it's now in the dialogue, but it, you know, it's, it's only in these pockets of, you know, the 60s civil rights movement. And then now with George Floyd's death, where it come pops back up at a kind of universal level, but we should be talking about it all the time. Because if we talk about it all the time, it's on everybody's mind and we're more prone to wanting to address it versus kind of pretending it's not there. And so I, I think talking about it is an individual action that's incredibly valuable in, in whatever way it works for you. But, but so that's, that's one thing. And also like every, every, every individual person you get, anyway, it's just one family member. And that was like the importance of my conversation with my father of just helping, you know, working with one person on, on, you know, finding how they can progress on this topic that fits them, that works for them is incredibly valuable action. So that's one thing. Two is the psychological aspect of taking action. So when you're taking small actions, yes, on a macro level, they may not, you know, let's say take the most basic thing, like remember to turn your lights off at night. On a macro level, that's not going to change the, the climate direction. But on an individual level, like knowing you're taking little actions and that you're starting to kind of, you know, in a way that works for you, live life with environmental on your, the environment on your mind and the needs of the environment and, and this planet on your mind, I think has a tremendous psychological benefit to just sort of like, now that is, that is constantly there. That is, that is in your head, you know, and you can feel the small wins sometimes are really important for people because, you know, there's also this sort of downside of if, too much is like, well, the system has to change and those corporations have to change. And I'm, you know, I'm going to, you know, as soon as they do, I'm going to do, do as well. We start, we, we don't move people along in, in the, even the actions they can do that are accessible, such as talking about it as much as we can. And so I think there's a psychological benefit to encouraging everyone to take actions that they can take and reward and giving them rewards for doing so. So again, I go back to the vegan plant, plant-based thing. You know, I consider anybody who's just cutting back on their meat consumption in a way that they can, even one meal a week, part of a part, like I consider them vegan now. And I didn't do that a couple of years ago. But now I'm like, if you're making any effort at all, well, then you should be in this movement. You know what I mean? You should be included. And it, it doesn't like, like, doesn't matter that you're, you're eating more of that than I am. It doesn't make me better than you or you less than me. It's just like, we're now we're all, we're in this together. And so I think there's a psychological benefit to that. The third thing would be for me, the fact that in a free market system, corporations, whether we like it or not, are always going to chase demand. They are, they are set up 
to you know chase the consumer demand and where consumers want to spend their money. And they are going to identify that and they're just going to lean into it regardless of the externalities and the negative outcomes that come at that because they are bottom line driven. And I don't see the free market system changing, nor do I want it to change necessarily. And, you know, that's a kind of a deeper debate we can, or like not debate necessarily, because we might fully agree on this, but deeper discussion we can have sometime in another podcast episode. But in a free market system, I do believe, you know, consumers have more power than, you know, we, we tend to think we do on where we choose to spend our money. And you're right that a lot of people don't have choices. And that is, that has to be acknowledged and, and addressed. And, and, and that, to me, puts even more onus in a way for those who do have choices like myself to make those choices that are more environmentally friendly, to move that needle on faster on those corporations saying, okay, well, demand is shifting here. Like maybe we should shift soon. I mean, think about it. Tyson Foods is actually developing plant-based meats that are affordable, right? 10 years ago, there is no way any executive within Tyson Foods could have brought up the idea of like, should we make plant-based chicken nuggets? And they would have like kept their job. Like it would have just been laughable around like, absolutely not. What are you, what are you talking about? But because, you know, some consumers and albeit the ones that can afford it right now are shifting more dollars, you know, towards kind of plant-based meats. You know, you see even now a big corporation like Tyson Foods thinking, okay, how do we get in on this and do it in a way that actually is mass market? You know, because like Beyond Meat and Impossible are way too overpriced for to be mass market, way too overpriced to get like majority of people eating that. But as soon as someone like Tyson Foods comes along and and who is, you know, who is built around mass market distribution, now they're doing the same thing. And so like they're they're chasing a little bit of that, that, that demand, that tailwind. And the last thing I'll say is cultural. I I don't think we're going to solve climate change without a cultural shift on, on, on prioritizing this. And that cultural shift, obviously, it has to sort of touch through individual action, corporations, and government, all three levels. But culture, like we have to create a culture of prioritizing this planet. And, 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 and so much of that is communication, as you've been talking about. And, and it's such, such, such important work to do that. But I think in order to make a cultural change where it becomes trend it becomes like just culturally sort of accepted and culturally required in a way to do to to sort of live in a in a greener way or greener is not the best way to do to, to point this but just live in a way where this is important to you and and you value it that is a cultural thing that i think is starting to happen but will accelerate more and more the more we embrace and encourage individual action to someone's means and i, I you know that's such an important caveat to someone's means. Like we cannot just sort of blanket the actions that everyone is supposed to take across the board um, because that is not fair whatsoever. Um, but to someone's means, when people do take those actions, rewarding it, I think is sort of a key part of shifting the culture of, of, of humanity towards prioritizing this. So those are, you know, I, I know those are like a long rant, but those are sort of my reasons and defense, if you will, on why I, I put individual action on the same level, not not more important than systemic change, but on the on this kind of same level as. Yeah, you know, I think you have uh, a really good point, which kind of ties into what I was saying earlier about priming, which is, you know, the more somebody is kind of making these small changes in their own life, the more they're being primed for kind of being environmentally minded. That when something is on their ballot for some environmental climate initiative. 
they are probably a lot more likely to vote for it. If there's a candidate that's out there talking more about climate change, if they're thinking about climate change in their own life, they're more likely to vote for that candidate, which is what leads to systemic change. So this idea of kind of individual action as sort of like a gateway into fighting for systemic change, I think is a is a really compelling point. Great. Well, that, that was actually kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So last topic, because, you know, I, you and I could probably talk about lots of things till, till we just pass out <laughs> and that the, at some point listeners will, will lose interest in that, but is, is the, the outdoors and climate change. Yeah. I would love to sort of hear your thoughts on, on this. And, you know, this is probably one that you and I are going to have nothing but a lot of agreement on. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's something I've, I've thought a lot more about in recent years. And there's kind of this point in which my perspective just totally changed. Because the outdoors right now, as it is, it, it's discussed, it's talked about as an interest. Like some people like it. I'm not that outdoorsy. People write, they're out, they love the outdoors and their dating profile. Like it's seen as like an interest or a hobby or, you know, just like a fundamental part of what you like to do or don't like to do. And Kind of on your note, I mean, the mental health part is unequivocal. I mean, the research backs this up by multitudes about the the, the necessity of the outdoors. But I, I read one book that just completely fully cemented a, a different perspective for me. And it's a book called Lost Connections by Johan Hari. And he's a journalist that talked about his own journey with depression, which was pretty a pretty big part of his life. And he talks about his skepticism in finding solutions because so few had worked for him. And he'd suffered just most of his life. And in addition, he also kind of took this journalistic approach where he went around the world and he talked to researchers to uncover the latest on depression. Because the research is, you know, kind of changing all the time. We're always finding new things and found that there are a lot of misconceptions, not only in the public's mind, but also in the scientific community itself. And he kind of lists out what he calls this, like, I think it was seven, seven causes of depression. And one of them is what he calls disconnection from the natural world. Now, these are causes. These are not correlations. This is not just saying somebody who's depressed doesn't go outside. They don't have the energy to go outside. You just don't want to go outside. No, this is also saying that if you do not go outside, it can have profound negative impacts on your mental health and well-being. It can precipitate depression. It can create depression. And when you think about it this way, the outdoors isn't an interest. It's a need. If this is something fundamental to what makes us okay, to what makes us human, if this is how we evolved, if you need access to nature to be okay, then it is a human right. Access to the outdoors is a human right. And that's absolutely not how it's treated today. So when people say their interest is the outdoors, it's like saying their interest is water and shelter and clean air. And it's treated as a privilege today. It's treated as something some people have access to. If you're lucky enough, if you have the, the resources, if you have the time, if you live in an area with public lands, with parks, with green spaces, so many people don't. And I always use this example that, you know, when I lived in Washington, D.C., I when I was working at the White House, I, I would come home really late at night. And when I'd be walking home, sometimes it was 2 a.m. And there was so much artificial light, it looked like the sun was rising. And I remember it hitting me at one point that I hadn't seen true darkness in like a year. 
And then it hit me that people who grew up here probably have never been able to see true darkness. They don't know what the night sky looks like. And there's actually, you know, the International Dark Sky Association actually talks about the need for darkness far beyond just, you know, it's whimsical and poetic and beautiful. I mean, it, it affects sleep patterns. It affects your public, your, your health. And so thinking about that, just how that impacts your well-being, you know, not being able to see the horizon if you live in a major city. People don't have access to this. So it completely changed my perspective on the necessity of the outdoors and of nature versus kind of whether you can access it if you want it, if you're interested in it, if you have fun in it, just a totally different way of looking at it. Yeah. I mean, those are great points. And I agree wholeheartedly in terms of it's, it is a human right. It is a human need that as sort of we've lost touch with and, and, and a lot of it because we don't have a choice because of the situations some pe- you know, many people are born into. And that's where the privilege comes in of those who haven't lost touch with it. Even for me, I didn't, you know, I, I was kind of in your, your boat. I didn't really get into the outdoors until my twenties. I, I didn't grow up in an area, you know, I grew up in a suburb with, you know, with a mom and two sis- two sisters and a mom, you know, working her tail off, you know, multiple jobs to keep things going. There was no camping excursions and, you know, you know, treks into the Appalachians or anything uh, like that. And it wasn't until my twenties that I experienced it. And it just blew me away of like how good I feel when I'm just out there in nature. And, you know, it, it does dawn on me even more so now how many people don't get to experience that and, and how many people should not just for the sake that like, I think on one hand it does try probably is another primer as you talked about for caring about you know climate the more you kind of experience the 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 incredible wonders of the natural world but it's a mental health thing there is you know the study they did in Japan around this topic around urban versus forest settings i don't think so i'm going to link to it in the podcast description but they did a study where they they took i think it was i want to say like 600 people and they they looked at their behavior after walking 15 minutes in an urban setting or in a forest over the course of a week, like regular walks, either an urban setting or forest. And they found that those that are walking in the forest experience less anxiety, less hostility, less fatigue, less confusion, more vigor, more energy. They found the people that were walking in the forest, like were like started to, to like drink less coffee. Like it was just insane. Sort of the, the quick results of the same walk, the same pace for 15 minutes. It wasn't, it's not like a heart rate difference thing. Like they're, they're the, when both groups are walking at the same pace, the same distance each day, but one is just walking in a city and one is walking in a forest. And it was just dramatic that sort of differences. And that, I think, you know, that's an example that points to the, the mental health aspect of this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, there also, there's really interesting research on hospital patients and how quickly they recover if they're looking at a brick wall outside their window or if they're looking at green space and that it rapidly increases. <laughs> not, you, you recover significantly faster. I mean, your body physically heals significantly faster. If you're just, if you have access to that, even if you can't go outside, I mean, they're just looking at it. It's powerful. So yeah, I mean that that sounds like a really fascinating study, and and it's it's back to I've even I read an account of doc, a doctor in Europe who 
was giving out prescriptions for his patients with depression, and he gave out a prescription to several of his patients to go build a community garden. It was literally like written on a prescription like paper. And, you know, it's kind of an anecdotal story, but the effect that had on this group of patients who were depressed and how their lives were transformed by working on a community garden was really powerful to read. Do you know the book, The Biophilia Hypothesis? No, I don't. Well, it's sitting in my in my queue. I, I have I've I've ordered it, but I have not read it yet, to be fair. But I did order it because it was done by two professors and specifically the entire book is about how, you know, it's a scientific look at how the sort of envir- relentless environmental destruction is having, you know, significant negative impact on on our psychological and spiritual quality of life. And Absolutely. they even talk in there about like, you know, you know, is, do you wonder why people bring flowers to somebody in a hospital? It's not like a romantic gesture, obviously. Well, I guess it could be in some cases. It's, 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 it's because of there's something about the natural world that lifts your spirit. We all derive from it. We're all animals. You know what I mean? Like we, we are animals. People lose sight of that too that we are animals. And if you were looking down at this planet from, you know, a, you know, another, another, another galaxy, another solar system, you would, you would see us moving around like other animals move around on this planet, you know? And, and so we, we've kind of lost that connection in the sort of rapid urbanization and industrialization of the world. And yeah, I'm curious, I guess, as a next kind of segue to this part of this topic is how do we address it? So we, we've, we've, we, we just talked about how it's an issue and why it's so important, but what do you think we do to address it? Like just given that so many people live in paycheck to paycheck, we're increasingly, you know, sort of populating people in urban locations. That is, that is, that is going on the rise in terms of the density of our major cities. And that may actually increase that rate that that is increasing because of climate migration, because there's a good chance that we will see more and more people moving out of, you know, kind of wildfire, wildlife interface, you know, areas and zones, you know, especially in the West Coast, especially in the Gulf Coast and the, and the Eastern Seaboard. So there's a good chance this is increasing. So how do we address this in your mind if we're seeing all the trends point towards cities getting more dense? There's also, by the way, an environmental benefit for living more densely. This came up in my last podcast with Jonathan Parfrey, the head of Climate Resolve. And like, you know, we just can cut back on on cars and emissions if people are living more densely. But then how, how do you think with those trends going that direction, how do we address this sort of this gap on getting people out in nature more? Yeah, it's a, t- it's a tough question. And so I guess to take a quick step back, I think that there's kind of this perception that policy, you policy comes first. And then from that, you figure out how to communicate it. And what we actually know is that policy is derived from communications because we frame things a certain way and that determines how we solve for those problems. So I I really think part of this is a communications challenge. We need to figure out a couple things. One, how we can communicate to the people who have had the privilege of spending time outdoors that they have benefited their whole lives and, and received those mental health benefits. I've, I've taken that for granted, certainly. I think the second part is communicating to the people who don't have access to the outdoors. Like, for, let me give a better example. Like communities that have come together to create parks, 
like green spaces in their community where they don't have them because we forget so many communities don't have any green spaces. The, the powerful mental health benefits that can come from even just having a park in your neighborhood and even also can have impacts on, on safety, on, on community fabric, things like that, like a sense of community that comes from having green spaces, more, more socializing, things like that are really powerful. So I really think part of it is just people understanding more the benefits of these public lands so that we can fight for them or public spaces, you know, because I think communications is kind of the root problem for us not being able to solve our problems. Oftentimes it's because we don't know how to communicate for them. Well, there, and yeah, this is, we also, I just think we have to redesign our cities. You know, we have to acknowledge that, you know, we are going to live more densely and there are benefits to that environmentally. It's happening. It's, it's going to be a reality. And before, you know, that massive, you know, rush continues to happen in these cities where the point where you, you know, you can't redesign them because they're just so dense and populated. We have to really start to aggressively rethink how we design our cities to have, you know, parks, to have trees, to have to, you know, to the natural world kind of living within it. Because I don't, I, I don't think we have a lot of time left to get this right. Because, you know, if our urban centers, you know, just continue on the trajectory they are, in the population increases, which all signs point that they are, they're going to, then, you know, you're going to get to a point where it's almost impossible to redesign any of these urban centers without massively disrupting like millions of people. And so, yeah, I just, it's one of these things that feels very urgent to me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We, I live, I leave with just four questions that are super rapid fire. So the first one is, the first question to, to, to kind of finish us up in our style is what is one book or, I mean, you could magazine or, but I would just try to stick with book that you recommend, you know, people read that that's out there that it's made an imprint on for you. Oh, well, okay. Not related to any of this. My favorite book is The Largesse of the Sea Maiden by Dennis Johnson, who I, I really started to think of as like a, a modern day Hemingway style feels very similar. And it's a collection of short stories that are just wonderful, I think, and really just relevant to American life. It was actually recommended by Barack Obama on his book list. The other, I mean, I would just plug kind of re- more relevant to what we talked about is the book I mentioned, Lost Connections by Johan Hari. Really powerful book about depression. And it'll make you kind of rethink not only the illness itself, but also the solutions available to us, which are a lot of people are doing some really wild out there stuff. And uh, it's really interesting to kind of see what's coming of it. You know, like therapy with psychedelics. And like I mentioned, like doctors who are giving prescriptions out for community gardens and and socializing, things like that. So I, I would say it's a great read for anybody interested in mental health. Awesome. Next question is, what is one film or documentary or TV series that, you know, maybe is not the sort of the super widely known, such as, you know, planet earth and that, that kind of category, but what's one out there that you think everybody should watch? Oh, I, you know, I don't watch a lot of TV. I'd have to think about that. I'm sure, I'm sure I would have an answer if I thought about it. (laughs) Okay. Uh, The next question I, you actually did answer earlier in the podcast. I'm curious if you're going to, you know, you'll answer it the same way, but you know, on the, on the subject of individual, individual action, what is one thing that you do think is, you know, 
fairly wide, widely accessible or, or fully accessible that everybody can try to do that will have a positive impact on, on the mission ahead? I love that you asked that. Register people to vote. There's a great website called whenweallvote.org. That is a really great way to get involved in the civic process. They're very active in the last election. It's a nonpartisan organization, but the more people we can get registered to vote, that we can get to participate in our political process, the more climate forward candidates we can create and the more systemic change we'll see. Awesome. And yes, you were consistent with that. And then last one is, what is your favorite non-human animal? non-human animal llamas i actually i have a llama on my on my wall right now it's like a it's, it's like a cartoon llama that i love and it's usually behind me anytime i do like a zoom panel it's behind me and i always get great comments about it so we're going with llama i'm going with llama i i thought of that on the spot i didn't prepare that <laughs> that's a great choice do you know about the my favorite I forget the the, fa- the famous llama that was in some of the protests this summer do you know what I'm talking about? No, I don't. There's a llama, pro- a protest llama? There's a protest llama. Well, I mean, it's a llama that I think is, oh man, hold on. I'm going to look it up real quick because it's just it's just too good. And the images of it, the Caesar, Caesar the no drama llama. <laughs> do you know about Caesar? I do not. Oh, Which- so Caesar Caesar has been like a therapy llama for years. And the, the gentleman that 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 the you know Caesar's human companion, I forget his name, has 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 taken Caesar for years to, you know, sort of you know, chill everything, children's hospitals, elderly elderly homes, things like that. And then he brought Caesar out during in Portland, I believe it was, during the the protests following George Floyd's murder. And and it was just like tremendously impactful for you know, you know, people are in a very high tension, right? High sort of state to have Caesar. And he's known as Caesar, the no drama llama. And there's some amazing, amazing footage of Caesar sort of like marching in the protests. <laughs> wow. I, I, I initially thought you meant like a person in a costume. I didn't realize it's a, a physical, like an actual llama. No, it's a llama. It's a, it's a legit oh. llama. I think this is going to make you fall in love with llamas even more. So. That's um, I feel like I feel like you need to add to the bucket list. You need to meet Caesar. Yeah, that's definitely on my list now. Well, on that note, we can we can we can wrap things up. I we've been we've been talking for a while, and I really appreciate the time. And again, I feel like you know if we don't if we don't like discipline ourselves to put a put a stop to it, we would talk for hours. But uh, yeah, I really I really appreciate it, Molly. I appreciate all the work you do and. And the, uh, the opportunity I've had to get to know you since, uh, you know, briefly since the the conference that you were so kind enough to join. And yeah, hopefully you can, you can make a mountaineer out, out of me as well at some point. <laughs> Thank you, James. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. 